following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. Let's talk some more out of Hebrews. So last week we talked about how great a salvation Jesus has given to us. The week before that we talked about how Hebrews is just going to put Jesus on a pedestal for the entire book. We're going to come back to this over and over, that Jesus is great. So we're in chapter 2 this week, beginning in verse 10. I'm going to read the section in its entirety, and then we'll talk about it. So I'm beginning in verse 10, Hebrews chapter 2. It only makes sense that God, by whom and for whom everything exists, would choose to bring many of us to his side by using suffering to perfect Jesus, the founder of our faith, the pioneer of our salvation. As I will show you, it's important that the one who brings us to God, that is the one who sanctifies, are those who are brought to God or those who are sanctified. They become one. I just want to note here that this one has to do with one nature, and here it's referring to Jesus became flesh and blood like we are as part of this process. So we are all from one Father. This is why Jesus was not ashamed to call us his family. Perhaps you have a translation that says brothers and sisters. Saying in the words of the psalmist, I will speak your name to my brothers and sisters when I praise you in the midst of the community. In the words of Isaiah, I'll put my trust in the eternal one. And again, look, here I am with the children God has given me. Since we the children are all creatures of flesh and blood, Jesus took on flesh and blood, so that by dying he could destroy the one who held power over death, that is the devil, and destroy the fear of death that has always held people captive. So notice, his concern here is not for the welfare of the heavenly messengers, that is the angels, but for the children of Abraham. He had to become as human as his sisters and brothers so that when the time came, he could become a merciful and faithful high priest of God, called to reconcile a sinful people. And since he has also been tested by suffering, he can help us when we're tested. I'm going to use this passage for two weeks because there's actually quite a bit of material here. There's three different topics. The first one is this idea that suffering perfected Jesus. Do any of you have question marks in your mind when you hear that? Because Jesus was perfect, right? What does it mean when the Bible says that suffering perfected Jesus? That's going to be next week's topic. They also bring up the idea of Jesus as the high priest. And since that's going to come up later in Hebrews, we're going to address that when it comes up later. What I want to talk about today is this claim that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Now, after the writer of Hebrews says that, he follows up this claim with three quotes from the Old Testament. And I don't know about you, but when I read these quotes for years, I just kind of skimmed over them like, I don't get what he's trying to say. So let's just move on and skip a couple verses. But what the writer of Hebrews is doing in these quotes Keep in mind, he's speaking to a Jewish audience that would have known the Old Testament well. So he's taking Old Testament quotes they're familiar with, and he's making the case, number one, that Jesus is the Messiah. But then number two, Jesus now is a brother to us. Sometimes you hear the phrase elder brother, and we're going to unpack that as we go through the morning. But I want to look at these three quotes just to give you an idea of what the original audience would have heard when they heard this scripture read to them in church. So let's start with the first quote. I'll speak your name to my brothers and sisters when I praise you in the midst of the community. 
So that's right after Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. In the words of the psalmist, I'll speak your name to my brothers and sisters when I praise you in the midst of the community. So the author is citing Psalm 22, verse 22. In this psalm, David is basically saying to God, when you deliver me, I will praise you. So the first thing the writer is establishing here in these quotes is that Jesus is your deliverer. And now Jesus is the one that you praise. Jesus is God. So David says, I will praise God publicly when he delivers us in the Old Testament is to deliver us from our enemies. All right, now, uh, establishing that Jesus is this deliverer. Jesus is this Messiah who has delivered you from suffering. And then the writer adds that because we're flesh and blood, Jesus took on flesh and blood. He can deliver us from our sufferings because he becomes one of us. And as the passage notes, he becomes a high priest. We're going to deal with that in a couple weeks. The other thing I find interesting in this particular quote is that when it says, I'll praise your name, let's not get confused. They're not praising the vowels and the consonants that went into the name Jesus. Name has to do with character and reputation. When you hear in scripture, for example, Jesus says, my name will be lifted up. It doesn't mean simply that everyone will know the name Jesus. It means that who Jesus is will be lifted up for people to see. So you see the writer in the Old Testament in Psalms, and now the writer of Hebrews saying what's going to happen is that the character and nature of Jesus is exalted by this. I read an interesting commentary kind of comparing how Jesus is known to the way in which the temple was built. And I don't know if the original audience made these connections or not. I just thought it was an interesting connection. So you'll see a diagram of the temple here on the board. And there was times when it was in a tent in the Old Testament, times that it was built uh, as a, a brick-and-mortar building. But the pattern is pretty much the same. First of all, you have the outer court. Then you have the inner court. Then you have the Holy of Holies. And this one commentator noted that the outer court, think of it as the equivalent to the miracles that God does. You know that God is present. You know that God is active. And so we talked a couple weeks ago uh, in Hebrews 1. The writer says God established the truthfulness of the Bible by confirming it with signs and wonders. Yeah, God made his presence known. So think of the outer court as kind of an introduction to God. You see him, you know that he's there. The inner court is more of what's called a, a holy place. And this is, uh, this writer says, the equivalent of the name of God, where the character and nature of God now resides. God is there in a way that if you moved geographically into this temple, you were in a sense closer to God. And, and in some ways, the temple is just meant, I think, to be a visualization. God is always near, but uh, just a way to help us wrap our minds around it. So we move into that inner court. Now we have the character and nature of God. That's the name, the reputation. If you get into the Holy of Holies, particularly you have the mercy seat there. This is the thing that we highlight and that Hebrews highlights over and over. A merciful God came in the person of Jesus Christ, died for us, and made salvation possible. It's the ultimate expression of the love and mercy of God. So there's your first quote. I'll speak your name to brothers and sisters. All right, Jesus is the deliverer. And Jesus, because of the way in which he went about delivering us, is now a brother to us. Second quote, I'll put my trust in the eternal one. 
Really, trust in this verse is best defined as obedience as a result of God's persuasion. In other words, trust is lived out. It's one thing to simply say, I trust Jesus or I have faith in Jesus. But does my life reflect that I actually live that way? There's often the story told of the famous tightrope walker who he was above a canyon or something and did all this tightrope walking and people were like, woo, and he's like, do you trust me? Yeah, woo, do you think I could carry someone across? Yeah, woo, how about you? No thanks. And their point was, you don't actually trust him as much as you say that you do. Okay, here we read, I will put my trust in the eternal one. This is obedience as a result of God's persuasion. You have seen God. You you know God. Not only have you seen his acts, you've gotten to know the nature of God. And now you trust God enough to give God your life. And that could be for some people martyrdom. But for most of us, if not all of us in this room, as our lives unfold, it's simply going to be that daily sacrifice of giving the sinful side of our life to Christ, surrendering it, in repentance and forgiveness of letting Christ work in us. They also make the point that while Jesus is the object of our faith, he's also the perfect example of our faith. You hear times where scripture refers to Jesus in Romans eight twenty nine as the firstborn among many brothers. And this idea goes back to preeminence and importance. If you go back to the Psalms once again, Jesus is the highest of those who were born. So Jesus is the perfect example also of what it looks to live a life surrendered to God. And he's here, once again, as our elder brother, so to speak, to model this for us and show us what it's like. And then finally, the third quote. Look, here I am with the children God has given me. Note the part of the phrase that says, God has given me. It's a good reminder. We don't enter the family of God by our work. We don't enter the family of God because we've earned it because we're good enough. We didn't impress God enough to enter the family of God. God adopts us into his family because of his love and his grace. Now, if you would read this whole verse in Isaiah, the whole verse is, here I am with the children God has given me for signs and wonders in Israel. There's something about giving our lives to God that God then uses as a sign of the greatness of his of his majesty, of his being, of who he is, that he takes people like us and he redeems us and he makes something new and good of us or before we were simply dead and broken. I think this is the idea. If the original audience was finishing this verse in their head and the Bible doesn't say they were, I'm making some speculation here. I assume that they did. What would it mean that we are now signs and wonders? I, I think it's the testimony of our lives, of Christ in us as the hope of glory. I was talking to someone this last week, and they described themselves as God's trophy. They weren't bragging. They simply meant, if you knew who I was before Christ, and now you see who I am with Christ, that's astonishing. It wasn't something that pointed to the glory of themselves. It was something that pointed to the glory of Jesus. So you put those three quotes together now, and you get this cool thing. Where Jesus is our Savior and our Redeemer, but he also makes us family. I was thinking a little bit about this in terms of how would I convince my sister that not only am I her brother, I'm her Savior. That would be problematic. 
But this idea that there's one who saves us first and then makes us family. So for Jesus to save us, one of the things that happens is that he knows what we need saving from. He knows our sin. He knows the depths of our hearts and our minds. He knows everything about us. And to come in as a savior and save us, he sees the grime and the dirt and the soot of our lives in ways that probably even we don't. I don't know about you, but I I think in some ways, when I think of how I respond to really seeing evil unpacked, what I would tend to do is want distance. Not our Savior Jesus. Jesus sees all of that in us. And he moves in closer. And not only does he save us, but he goes, I want you in my family. Which is just an astonishing mindset. And we get it from the Lord of the universe. So he's not ashamed to call us family. We'll read this later in Hebrews when we get to chapter 11 in what's called the hall of faith often in Hebrews. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He's prepared a city for them. We see other places where Jesus talks about his followers as family. Uh, Behold my mother and my brethren. And he's pointing to his actual mother and brothers. Then goes on to say, whoever does the will of my father, which is in heaven, the same as my brother and sister and mother. After the resurrection, he says to the women who see him, he says, go and tell my brothers the good news. And if you're looking to unpack this in any fancy way, it's, it's family. We're family now. And I think it's worth letting that sink in a little bit. I'm going to give you a couple quotes as I was reading up on this this last week. Uh, I got to tell you, some of the, the, the Christian giants on whose shoulders we stand, they just have ways of profoundly saying things, and I don't need to reinvent the wheel. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of what Christians throughout history have said about the immensity of what God offers to us through Christ, about making us children of God, making us brothers and sisters of Jesus. First, from a guy named Matthew Poole, considering him and the holiness of his deity and them or us and the filthiness of sin, he might have been ashamed of such a brotherhood. But by his effectual word, he adopted them into a state of childship and heirship to God with himself and in the flesh to give them that glory that they might be one with God as he and his father are one. And then two in a row from Charles Spurgeon. He has so become a partaker of our nature that now we are one family, and he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Am I addressing any who are ashamed of Christ or who are ashamed of God's poor people and who would not like to be known to be members of a poor church? Ah, how you ought to despise yourselves for having any such pride in your hearts, for Christ is not ashamed to call his people brethren. What a wonderful condescension. And we're going to talk in a little bit about what that condescension means. It says, they are poor, they are despised, they are persecuted. What is worse, they are imperfect and faulty, often sorrowful, cast down, condemning themselves, groaning at the mercy seat. Yet he is not ashamed to call them brothers. There is such a unity between the believer 
be he in what sorrow he may, and Christ, be he in what glory he may, that he is never ashamed to own the close relationship between them. So I was looking up what it meant that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And if you go to Strong's Concordance, it gives you a whole bunch of ways that it's used in Scripture. But I think perhaps the best way to understand this is the language of condescension, which is the word that Charles Spurgeon used. This is simply what we mean when we talk about God becoming flesh in Jesus. Con means with, descend means to go down. God came down with us. He condescended to our level so that he could save us. It was the way to do it, the only way to do it. He had to become one of us. I think about what I was told years ago about how to talk to little children. Because we can be really intimidating, right? There's little kids about this tall and we're standing there looking down on them. They're like, hey. And they don't quite know what to do. If you just crouch down and get to eye level with a little child, they're far more likely to engage with you. They'll high five you before you know it. In a very minor sense, that's what we're talking about is God coming down to our level, not demanding that we come up to his. I don't tell little kids, come back when you grow up and can talk to me eye to eye. Right? It would be foolish. I condescend. I go down with them. I go down to their level so that I can communicate. Philippians 2.7, Jesus made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of humanity and humbled himself. The God of the universe did that for us. So chapters 1 of Hebrews, it's all about how God is superior to everything. Even these amazing, amazing angels that the Hebrew people were so infatuated with, you think they're amazing, look at Jesus. And in some ways that start is, God is so far up here, you have no idea how far above you God is. But, but then the narrative unravels. Because even the pagans thought the gods were above them. But one of the problems, if, if you would talk to the Greeks and the Romans then about the gods coming down to serve and to love and to sacrifice, that was unheard of. The gods came down to ravage us and to use us. The gods came down simply to benefit from us. But the writer of Hebrews and the rest of Scripture says, no, that's not the case with Jesus. He stoops to save comes down to our level, he serves, he suffers for us because he loves us. We end up with this idea that Jesus is this bridge between a God who is so far above us we cannot comprehend it and a God who now in his Holy Spirit lives within us. So the fancy word is transcendence and imminence. Jesus bridges that gap and lets us know that this God who we cannot comprehend has made himself available to us and comprehensible to us in Jesus. And Jesus is not ashamed to do that. In other words, it's not beneath his dignity to become one of us, to save us, and then to claim us. I tried to find some songs this week about how Jesus isn't ashamed of us. What I discovered was that there's just a boatload of songs about out there about how we're not to be ashamed of Jesus. And I absolutely agree with that. We are not to be ashamed of Jesus. I couldn't find one song that praised God for Jesus not being ashamed of us. In fact, I tried to find songs that just talked about this, 
this reality that Christ is our brother. I found one, a hymn. God our Father, Christ our brother. Anybody? It's the only song I could find. I mean, I'm sure there's more out there. But it's not something we actually settle into a lot as part of understanding our relationship to Jesus. We talk a lot about being a servant. We talk about being an ambassador. I've used that a lot in the last couple of years, being an ambassador of Christ. We talk about being children of God, but the brotherhood, the sisterhood, Jesus as on that level of connection with us, I think that's pretty amazing. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. So when Sheila and I were dating, I used to love to walk through doors and fake like I was banging my nose on the door. I still like to do that, honestly. Um, you know, you just kick it with your foot and you snap your head back. You're like, da, da, da. And then you grab your nose. Don't say, that gives it away. Um, and you grab your nose and you go, oh. Okay, so I used to do this so often we were dating. I don't know if I'm proud of this story, but I think I am. When we would go to the mall, Sheila would actually drop back when we got to doorways, like 50 to 20 feet behind me, and just trail till I was safely through all the doors. I'm walking through, like, ah, ah. Look at her, I'm so, and she's like back there, shaking her head. Still married me, um, which I said I think says a lot about me, Julie. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's, that's a trivial thing. And I'm pleased to say that Vincent has been following in my footsteps every once in a while with this. So, that hashtag good parenting. But I wonder sometimes, what do I do that make people not want to be near me? I mean this now in a serious sense. What are the things I do that make people not want to be near me? The things that embarrass people around me. The things that might embarrass my earthly family. The things that might embarrass my spiritual family. Listen, I know myself well enough to know that I do those things. I know that there's times that my extended Weber family has kind of gone, oh, Anthony, what are you doing? I know there's people in this room who are part of my spiritual family, who have at times gone, oh, Anthony, what are you doing? <laughs> and I, I suspect there's even cases where people in my life, my real family or my spiritual family, they were reluctant to condescend with me, to come down to my level and be with me. Because when we do that, we run the risk of getting dirty with other people's dirt, getting grimy with other people's grime. It's a dangerous thing. And we can be thinking in the back of our minds, what if other people see me with this person? Will I now be guilty by association? What if they start to think that whatever characterizes that person must characterize me? What if they start to think, I'm approving of things in their life I ought not approve of? We can have all this stuff that goes through our head, and we can sometimes build these really justifiable spiritual walls that let us stay way up here and not condescend to be with other people. 
So I, I'm certain I've created those challenges in the lives of people around me. I'm certain you have too. This is not a unique Anthony problem. We, we make it hard for people around us at times to want to claim us, to want to take the time to claim us. We make it hard for people to want to take the effort to help us. It's a struggle. Am I alone? Is it a struggle? Yeah, okay. And I think we put people in categories sometimes. Over here's people who I'm ashamed of. Over here's people I'm really proud of. So I'm going to hang out and attach myself and tag people on Facebook posts. and be, I want people to know Anthony is associated with this particular kind of person. Then there's these other lists, if we're not careful, of people who are like, yeah, I'm not going to associate with them. I'm, I'm embarrassed that they are in my family, and you name the level of family, whether you mean my physical, biological family, whether you mean my spiritual family. Yeah, I'm not going to claim them. We often become Peter in these situations. We might not deny Jesus, but we'll deny the people of Jesus. I don't know them. I don't know her. I... We, we easily become people who are ashamed of our family. And I think it's amazing that Jesus was not ashamed to condescend to my level and suffer and die for me and then proudly claim me as one of his own. And if it's amazing for me, it's amazing for you. The God of the universe did that for you. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a brother and a sister. You are in the family of God. And Jesus did not think it was beneath him to descend down to our level, and that means your level, individually, And give his life and then say, she's mine. He's mine. That's my brother. That's my sister. I was thinking of the parable this week of, we often call it the prodigal son, but it's better called the two brothers or maybe even the parable of the faithful father. You're going to see a number of pictures go through up here because I couldn't decide on one that I really like to capture the feel. So the prodigal son leaves his father. And in Jewish culture, this was a humiliation to his father. Just dishonor like you would not believe. He goes away to a pagan country and ends up feeding pigs, which is just level upon level of dirt and sin and uncleanness. And when he comes back and he stumbles home and he smells of pigs and he reeks of sin, and what does his father do? Runs to him. And in that running, once again, the context of this, for an elderly Jewish man to run, what it would take to to approach his son like that, the father is humiliating himself in the eyes of the community yet again. 
because he loves his son. And he is not ashamed to run out and embrace him because that's his son. He's family. And even when he goes back home and now the elder brother in the story is an idiot. You don't see the father in the story reject the elder son. He's still a son. He's still family. He's still close. And even though that's father-son imagery, the the father-son, brother and sister, all get kind of tied together in the Bible because of this family dynamic. I think that's the idea that Jesus as our elder brother, the perfect elder brother, not ashamed to be associated, to claim us as his own. And I know we can struggle a lot with feelings of inadequacy, with feelings of failure, feelings like we're good enough, that nobody cares about us, that I just can't do anything right, that I assume people are judging me in this way. Um, I don't know what my life is worth. Do I have value? Do I have meaning? Do I have dignity? Do I have all these things? Can I just say again, if you are a follower of Christ, you're a child of God and Jesus is your brother he is not ashamed to do what it took to come down to your level and to claim you. And he holds you tight. I remember a coach once telling me that one of my boys, I'm not going to name which one, called me up and I'm going to paraphrase a long conversation, said, your son's being an idiot. And I knew that, but he was my idiot. That was my boy, and I loved him. I love my boys. I will claim them anytime. Are my boys perfect? No. No, but what price would I not pay for my boys? And I'm a deeply flawed father. What does a heavenly father, a perfect heavenly father, do for us? Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus overlooks sin. Doesn't mean he's never angry. Doesn't mean he doesn't prone us. Jesus doesn't enable. All right? But Jesus loves. And in the same way that I, as a father, can discipline my children, can hold them accountable, can have all these different things, I can do all those things and still be not ashamed to claim them as my own. Jesus is not ashamed. He was not ashamed to come down and claim his brothers and sisters that he is saved even in the midst of their imperfections. Final story. Tony Campolo used to tell a story of a time he was at an airport and he saw a father there waiting for his wife and his child. And when they got off the airport, the kid was covered in vomit. Must have been a horrible plane ride. And Campolo, as he tells the story, the kid just reeked. And he said the father did not bat an eye, ran up and grabbed his son from his wife and just embraced him and kissed him and held him close. Not ashamed to claim vomit kid as his own. I I just want to close with, now that is my closing It just struck me this week, I don't know if I ever, as a follower of Christ, have really settled into this idea 
that the, the amazing way in which God condescended to our level and thus my level and suffered and died for me and now that I'm his, he claims me as his own all the time. Uh, I'm his. Like Anthony at his worst, Jesus claimed me on his own. Anthony, when he fails, Jesus claims me on his own because I'm a child of God. When Anthony lets you down, Jesus claims me as his own. When I fail to be a good husband, Jesus claims me as his own. When I fail to be a good father, Jesus claims me as his own. In my inadequacies and my sins and my failures and my frustrations and you name it, Jesus claims me as his own. No way. Way. That's my encouragement this week is in the midst of what can be a tumultuous life in a lot of ways, um, yeah, meditate on this passage. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Lord, I'm just grateful how your word grounds us and gives us a foundation. Uh, For one, I'm just glad we're in a book now for a while that's just going to highlight Jesus Sunday after Sunday and just show your glory and your majesty and your beauty and your power and your love. Uh, I'm geeked about that. But, but Lord, I pray that it's more than just head knowledge. I pray that it sinks into all of our hearts and minds the privilege we have of being a child of God, a brother and sister of Jesus. It's amazing. Uh, what that does, Lord, for my sense of identity, for giving me a foundation of peace, of hope, uh, of grace, Lord, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit working in us, the power of your word at work in us, and the love of Christ that sustains us. May we ever grow to appreciate your name, and when we praise your name in all that we do. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.